the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Welcome, dear friends, to a very, very special... uh, Is this a version of America First? Is it part of our podcast? No, it is a standalone discussion with one of the true greats of American radio, an individual who... After how many years has it been, Larry Elder? Have you been in the business? Well, counting TV and radio, 35 years. 35. So is that how long it's going to take (laughs) me to get nominated to the Radio (laughs) Hall of Fame? I'm going to be an old, old man. Oh, my gosh. That is crazy. Just this week, nominated to the Hall of Fame. You only get one vote in that, right? It's not like the elections in Chicago. That's true, but I'm worried they're going to erect a statue of me. It'll be canceled. I'm not sure it's all that high an honor. All right. Well, it is well, well well-deserved. He's my colleague, my friend here at Salem Radio, a man who has been a mentor, an inspiration, a muse to so many names on the right for so many years. He truly, truly deserves that recognition. We're going to also discuss his incredible new movie, which I understand I'm not going to give away the inside baseball, but Uncle Tom is doing incredibly, only out for a few weeks, beyond your expectations. Is that right, Larry? It's it's shattering my expectations. You know, when you do something, you have a uh, worst-case scenario, a likely-case scenario, and wildest uh, optimistic-case scenario. It shattered that. You know, Michael Moore's uh, documentary, Bowling for Columbine, said was the fifth highest grossing political documentary of all time. It did $53 million, $21 million domestic. Our opening weekend doubled his opening weekend. I don't think ours is going to have the same trajectory, but uh, the opening weekend was twice as high as his. And when you think about an online release, you can pack a bunch of people in one room and watch it. You can watch it as many times as you want. So it's even more impressive when you consider uh, the fact that you can only watch a movie one time with a theatrical release, which is what he had for Bowling for Columbine. So it's mind-boggling. And if you go to IMDb and look at some of the reviews, over 1,000 people have now registered a review. It's got a 9.4 rating the last time I looked, higher than any of Michael Moore's documentaries. And there are about 300 written reviews. I mean, somebody taking the time to actually write a review. And virtually all the written reviews have given it 10 stars out of 10. And they're saying things like, I've learned things I didn't know. I didn't like Herman Cain at first, but now I see what he's really like. And what it's done is humanize all of these black conservatives who've been called Uncle Toms and self-loathers. Why? Simply for having a, a position that, A, not every problem can be traced to slavery and to Jim Crow, and B, uh, racism is, is no longer a major problem in America anymore. My goodness, didn't Obama's election and re-election suggest that? And so the conservatives all feel this way, and they're rejected and called Uncle Toms, but they're human beings. And the movie shows how much they truly care and how much it pains them to not be invited at the table so we can have an intelligent discussion about whether or not the welfare state has destabilized the family, whether or not we want to be in the party of forest borders, whether or not we want to be in the party of Roe v. Wade when 25 percent of abortions are performed on black women. Can't we have a discussion? That's all the movie is asking. Yeah, well, I'm going to get severe feelings of FOMO because 
Dennis Prager, my colleague, has world-beating documentaries like No Safe Spaces. Now, Larry Elder has a world-beating documentary. <laughs> We're now, short. I, I have to make one. I have to make a documentary. We will be on it momentarily. But in the meantime, UncleTom.com. Watch it tonight. I've seen it several times. Use my name to get a, a discount, 20% for the streaming. You can order the DVD. I left. You know, who knows what's going to happen to the cloud? Buy the DVD. Go to UncleTom.com and use my name, G-O-R-K-A. Thank you, Larry, for that discount for our viewers, our listeners. We'll talk about that yeah. amazing film momentarily. But, but first things first, um, follow this man. Follow him on Twitter, Larry Elder. Um, I hated, hated getting on Instagram. I, I got on Instagram about a year and a half ago. I, have no, I had no idea what it was for. <clears throat> pictures, pictures. What? Right. I felt what? the same way. I, yeah, I like time. to read. I like, I like moving <laughs> pictures, still pictures. I'm finally getting into it. Got a pretty good following. But this man, for a guy who's been in radio for 34, 35 years, man, his Instagram game is hot. Follow this man. I love his. Is it every Friday? It's every Friday you have that little cheers to your, you know, yeah. your viewers with your glass of wine. L- 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 little cabernet. But let me quick story about about Instagram. My Instagram yeah. game. So I had no clue about Instagram <laughs> about a year ago. I had an Instagram account because uh, a young person one time set it up for me, uh, and uh, I think I might have posted eight pictures in three years. And then I had lunch with a young friend who's a a, a social media influencer. Makes a living recommending products and stuff like that. And she said, why aren't you on Instagram? And I said, well, I have an account. I don't post anything. She says, I know. Why don't you? And I said, for what? Look at picture? <laughs> and she said, you'd be surprised. People want to see your life. They want to see what you're doing. Plus, you can post videos. You can put little, uh, little rants on these things. I had no idea. So I got serious. And I went from having 3,000 to, as you know, close to 410,000 as we speak right now. In one year. I mean, he's embarrassing me again. He's embarrassing me again. <laughs> Doc, I, I thought I'm close to a quarter of a million followers, and I thought I'm not going to even mention it, but, well, here he goes. Half a million almost, because that's Larry Elder, the sage of South Central. It took, well, keep in mind, though, Sam, it took me longer than you. I'm, I'm a lot older than you are, so by the time you get to my age, you'll have 10 million. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless we're all cancelled, let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about what is happening in America today. Yeah. I'm going to just throw it out there because we were trying to think with my team here, with John, with with uh, Eric, with Shad, with with um, Jeff, what to call this live stream because we, we we stream it live on YouTube. We've had 11 million views on our new YouTube channel wow. already, um, wow. and and we also have to give it a name. And and here's here's the question that that. that we use to you know give give the name for today's segment. Larry Elder, is America racist, or is Black Lives Matter racist? <laughs> well, America certainly is not racist uh, in, in the sense that uh, racism uh, as a factor has never been more insignificant in American life. Uh, you can be what you want to be to the greatest degree today than any time possible. And you know who knows that. Barack Obama does, because when Barack Obama goes and gives a commencement exercise at Howard, he says, if you could be born anytime, anywhere, where would it be and when would it be? And he said it would be here and now. And this is a guy whose last name is Obama, born in Hawaii, middle name Hussein, <laughs> knocks, off, knocks off Hillary, beats John McCain. Tepid recovery still beats Mitt Romney, and he believes racism is a major problem in America. Nonsense. 
How does somebody like that have the cashews to run for president as a black man if he truly believes that? Barack Obama believes that Barack Obama is a bad dude. His whole life has shown that. He goes from Hawaii, lives in Indonesia, uh, is uh, uh, at a private school that's run by the oil executives. His mom had married an oil executive, goes back to Hawaii, lives with his white uh, grandparents, goes to the finest prep school in the state, then goes to Occidental, a very fine uh, private school here in L.A., finishes up at an Ivy League school, Columbia, then goes to Harvard, educates his kids at Sidwell Friends. His wife went to a, what effectively was a magnet school. She was bused way out of her neighborhood because she wanted to avoid the local school. So when you think about it, she was, went to a magnet school. Obama never set foot in a public school. And he's talking about how racism is a major problem in America. Name me the, the time, the chapter, the phase in Obama's life when he was hurt by racism. Give it to me. It's ridiculous, and he knows better. However, the politician Obama knows he's got to lie because he needs to have blacks vote 95% for the Democratic Party. How do you get them to do that? Talk about how racist the Republican Party is. Talk about how oppressed you are. Talk about how racist America is. And that way we can get them not to focus on schools, not to focus on borders, not to focus on job-killing policies like the minimum wage. Get them focused on social justice issues, and we've got them. That's what the political Obama has to do. And I bet you he has difficulty sleeping at night. Honestly, I believe he does. Wow. Uh, he knows it's a lie. He knows it's BS. So he knows it is. Let, let me ask you in that case two things, uh, or, or whether which one of these scenarios is the reality. You make it sound as if this incredibly cynical exploitation of race is a strategic decision for, for political purposes uh, I would posit as a function of desperation. When when you see what Donald Trump has done for black America, when you see the, the economy before COVID, when you see the unemployment figures for black, for Hispanic, for women, there is this realization in the Democrat Party. They have nothing to run on. Therefore, they just stoke up these artificial fires of racism. Is it that, Larry? Or how about this, which is what I focused on in, in my last book, The War for America's Soul, that this is the obvious, the um, irrefutable bitter fruit of the last 90 years of ideological um, permeation of our culture. If you go back to Antonio Gramsci through the New Left, the Frankfurt School, Alinsky, Adorno, Marcuse, all the way up through, you know, AOC and Ilhan Omar today, that this is, why would we be surprised if, you know, Anthony Zinn's Marxist, Marxist book, A People's History of America, sells 2.7 million copies and becomes the leading history textbook in American state schools. Um, which of it is it? Is it a cynical, desperate move, or is it the fruit of 80 years, or is it just both, Larry? I read your book, and I think it's both. I call it uh, the access of indoctrination, Hollywood, media, academia. And for decades, they have been taken over by the left. Uh, it's hard to find somebody who's an, uh, an out-of-the-closet conservative uh, in humanities at a public university. Uh, it's hard to find a Hollywood executive out-of-the-closet who's a conservative. 
It's hard to find uh, a fair and balanced member of the media. Instead, we have people like Jim Acosta, who are social justice warriors masquerading as reporters. So this is the end game of all of this. And regarding why this uh, uh, notion about racism, 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 yes, it's cynical. The Democrats are doing it because they do it for votes. When Joe Biden said to uh, Charlemagne the God, if you don't know whether or not you want me or Trump by now, you ain't really black, he got criticized, including by people on the left. The same people on the left who criticized him didn't say Jack when the year before Ayanna Presley, one quarter of the squad, at that Netroots conference said, we don't want any more brown faces who don't want to be a brown voice. Right. We don't need any more black faces who don't want to be a black voice. She was saying the same thing Joe Biden said, which is, if you don't think a certain way, you're not really black. If you don't think a certain way, you're not really brown. Biden but she, said, but she, said, she because, said she went on. It wasn't just skin color. She said, if you're gay and don't right. have a gay voice, right. you're not gay. I mean, isn't that the antithesis of Martin Luther King? I mean, today we have the news as we're recording this. Instagram has this new option, this filter. You can mute, you can cancel white voices on Instagram. What would, Martin, what would the reverend say to that, Larry Alder? Well, the left today does not want the vision that Martin Luther King uh, talked about. They don't want a colorblind society. They want a color-coordinated society, and they want to be the ones to do the coordinating. That's why they're trying to get rid of uh, SAT scores. They want to go to a holistic approach. They can kind of decide based upon race, based upon gender, what would be a diverse kind of of faculty, a student body. Uh, And they don't mean intellectual diversity. They don't mean conservatives. They're just talking about skin color. That's what they're all about. And the left can say the most outrageous, racist things and get away with them. Uh, Years ago, there was a campaign to get rid of affirmative action. Uh, By the way, the the campaign now is trying to be reversed. The man who led that movement out here in California is a black man named Ward Connerly, still alive. Uh, He's married to a white woman. One of his political opponents, a black female, publicly said, let me tell you why you're supporting getting rid of affirmative action. You're married to a white woman. You have no ethnic pride. You want to be white. That's why you support this initiative. The next day, reporters asked her about it, and she said, that's right, I said it, and I don't take it back. Later on, Seb, she ran for and got elected to the U.S. House of Representatives and served three or four terms. Scotty, beam me up. Name somebody white who could say something like that about somebody black and get away with it. He would be toast, but she still gets elected. Al Sharpton has a show on MSNBC. This is a man who made his, he made his bones by falsely accusing a white man of raping a black teenager. It was, the whole thing was fraudulent. He knew it was fraudulent. The grand jury found it was fraudulent. A jury of, of successfully found him uh, liable for defamation. The man has never apologized. He's in the thick of the Crown Heights riots in 1991, where Jews were being attacked by blacks, stirred on by people like Sharpton. He's never apologized for that. And the man has a TV show on NBC. <laughs> Really? And we're talking about racism? So, <laughs> wouldn't you, go wouldn't ahead, you think the, the, wouldn't you think the first thing racists would do is get people like Sharpton and get people like Jesse Jackson and get people like Louis Farrakhan? They're all multimillionaires. How do you become multimillionaire selling America is a racist country if America, in fact, is a racist country? <laughs> and, and also, you, if, if it really is a racist country and you've become a multimillionaire, what is it your interest to maintain? The appearance that it is a racist country. The idea that you actually solve the problem means you're out of business, right? You you can no longer hustle race as Al Sharpton does. 
You know, and uh, and when when people use people like Oprah Winfrey as an example of what can what can people achieve, they dismiss that because after all, she's famous uh, and she's rare. They're missing the point. When you're at home, confines of your own home, private security, you could pick up that remote and you could practice your racism by not watching her if you want to. When you're in the voting booth and you're by yourself, it doesn't matter what you told your friends you're going to do. It doesn't matter what you told the poster what you're going to do. You can pull that lever for anybody you want. And Obama got a higher percentage of the white vote than John Kerry did. And we're talking about institutional racism? It's ridiculous. And it's hurting people. You're encouraging people not to work hard because after all, why should I bust my butt if there's some white guy with a big stick known as the white power structure uh, getting ready to strike me down? Why should I cooperate with the police when they pull me over if I sincerely believe because my leaders have told me that they're going to harass me? What's the point? That's what you're doing by doing all of this. The left believes a lot of stupid things. This stupid thing has real world consequences and it's getting people killed. One of the things you are incredibly adroit at is destroying these false narratives. One of the, uh, the best, one of my favorite YouTube videos is, a, is an early Rubin report, a very young David Rubin, with you sitting there. And, and Dave, you know, he's coming out of the left. He's been mugged by reality. He's on his way to become a libertarian. And, and he, he gives you this opportunity. He says, well, you know, there is systematic racism in America, at least if you look at the police. And then you challenge him and you say, really? Let's talk about the data. And then without skipping a beat, without looking at one note, without picking up your phone, you rattle off the latest statistics about uh, black on black violence, white on black violence, police interaction with black suspects, the FBI statistics. And it's truly stunning and i and we're going to repost it later today that clip of of your mastery of the facts that are the absolute opposite of what we're being told by the new york times cnn huffington post by black lives matter was was truly stunning but let let me let me use that as a segue to to something that happened last night so um, a colleague of mine at turning point usa had a baby last night. And I saw the, the lovely photograph from the hospital bed with his newborn and his wife. And I just sent him one word. I said, congratulations, as a text. And, and he responded. This was late at night, probably from inside the hospital. He responded thusly. And it made me think of you, Larry. He said, thank you, Sebastian. Get married. Start a family. Raise children. Love your country. I was told these were the secrets to happiness. Let's find out. You've said something very similar about the black American community and the secret to success. And it's not public policies. It has nothing to do with state policies, federal funding. It's much simpler. Would you share with our viewers and our listeners what is the key to success? James Q. Wilson, who is a professor of public policy at UCLA, once said, in order to escape poverty, you must do three, three things. First, finish high school. Second, don't have a kid before you're 20. Third, get married before you have that kid. Follow that formula, you will not be poor. Fail to follow that formula, there's a better than even chance you will, in fact, be poor. It sounds and, incredibly simple, simple. but can it, yeah. be that, can it be that true? Let, talk to us but, about the figures in the black community uh, in comparison to 70 years ago. 70 years ago, the likelihood of being born out of wedlock in the black community was what, Larry, in America? 
Well, uh, 70 years ago, around 25% or so of black kids were born outside of wedlock. Now that number is 70%, according to the CDC. You know, I was on, I think it was Fox uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and I was talking about this. And I said, because of what the welfare state has done, the welfare state has incentivized women to marry the government and has allowed men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. And I started going over all these figures, 70% of black kids today born outside of wedlock, uh, 50% Hispanic kids are, 25% of white kids are, the same figure that prompted that alarming booklet by Daniel Patrick Moynihan called The Negro Family, A Case for National Action, which came out in 1965, about the 25% of black kids born outside of wedlock. Fast forward now, 25% of white kids are born outside of wedlock. So I said all of this, and I said, during slavery, a black kid was more likely to be born under a roof with his biological mother and biological father than today. I get home, one of the left-wing websites has a headline, Elder says blacks better off during slavery. <laughs> Honestly. Incredible. <laughs> Hashtag fake news. Um, that, that, that's, that's truly, truly stunning. Let, let me ask you the question. I, I don't know. Maybe it's naive. At the end of the day, functionally, it doesn't matter. But I have to ask, you know, Larry the, the Sage, Candace Owen has used the phrase political plantation. And you look at the policies that came out of federal government in the 1970s. Which one of these scenarios really happened? Did the left, with you know, the great good society, the expansion of the welfare state, was that a conscious decision to create a political plantation of dependence that would lock in support from black America for the Democrats forever? Or did they really think they were doing a good thing? I, I know at the end of the day, it doesn't, if you're destroying families, it doesn't right. matter. But was, was it well-meaning or was it totally cynical, Larry? Um, you're going to find a lot of conservatives who believe that it was totally, totally cynical. I don't. If you read some of the literature, some of the things that Lyndon Johnson said, some of his deliberations, he naively thought that this welfare would provide a stepping stone to create further independence. Uh, he did not want people to become uh, uh, dependent. I know there's supposedly a, a quote attributed to him where he said, uh, once all this stuff gets passed, the N-words will be voting Democrat for the next 200 years. I've never been able to get a confirmation of that. But even if he did say it, uh, it is contradicted by many of the other things that he did say and other policy people said. He was just naive. Poverty was already falling. Uh, in 1940, 87% of blacks lived below the federally defined level of poverty. By 1960, that number had fallen to 47%. That's a 40-point drop in 20 years. That is warp speed. That is the fastest and, and most uh, powerful 20-year period of economic development for blacks in American history. Leave it alone. Enter the welfare state, and poverty still declined a little bit more. But pretty soon after the effects took over, after people's uh, initiatives began to change, uh, after people's priorities began to change, attitudes began to change, no more stigma for having kids outside of wedlock and so forth, we began to have this problem. He didn't anticipate this. He was just incredibly naive. One of these things, like Obama does, you sit there, a bunch of eggheads sit around with your uh, uh, scheme to, to, to engineer society, and you don't realize that there are all these decisions, you have no idea uh, how to make them, you're not that person, butt out. But they don't believe that. They believe in use of government uh, in order to level the playing field, whatever the hell that means. There is one area, however, where I think hopefully you will agree 
that it wasn't utopian visions of the future. It wasn't, you know, the, the, the path of good intentions, but it really was racist and it was cynical. And that's the abortion industry. When you look at the founder of the proto-Planned Parenthood, when you look right. at Margaret Sanger, when you look at the eugenicists, Larry, there's no doubt this was about killing and controlling as many black, as many black Americans as possible because they were deemed to be less than white. Is that not true? Well, we deal with uh, Margaret Sanger a little bit in Uncle Tom. I've never been able to find any specific thing where she said uh, black babies ought to be aborted. Uh, what she said was that uh, she felt there were certain uh, babies that, that struggled through life, that had poor chances through wretched, life. Uh, wretched children. Yeah, right. wretched, and, right. and that often overlaps to black people as well. But I've never been able to find any specific uh, language where she said black people, by definition, are, are less worthy than, than whites and therefore ought, ought to be aborted. I've never been able to find that. Believe me, if I found it, I'd say so. But, uh, but the ba it's bad enough uh, that 25% of, of, uh, of abortions are performed on black women. It's bad enough that Planned Parenthood has all of these uh, abortion clinics uh, in, in black neighborhoods. At one time, believe it or not, Jesse Jackson was pro-life. And then when he ran for president in 1984, he did a 180. All of a sudden, he became pro-choice. Imagine that. Incredible. All right, let's talk about what's happening on the streets of America now. Let's let's talk about statues. Let's talk about <laughs> the Emancipation Square, not far from this studio, where a statue paid for by freed slaves, which was unveiled in the presence in the presence of Frederick Douglass, right. was threatened with being torn down by Antifa, by Black Lives Matter. Um, what does this, let, let me ask you, is this the same? Are we, is this just 1968 redux? Or for Larry Elder, is there something qualitatively different in what we are seeing from Minneapolis to Baltimore? Well, in defense of the protesters, I mentioned there are 13 high schools in Baltimore where 0% of the kids can do math uh, at grade level. My suspicion is probably 0% can do history at grade level. They may not even know who the hell Frederick Douglass is. Uh, but uh, I've been, I was thinking, yeah, I think this is something fundamentally different. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, young people have been trained, uh, as you talk about in your book, and as I mentioned about the access of indoctrination, they've been trained uh, that they're victims. They've been trained that America got prosperous, not because of hard work, not because of its values, but because America has exploited people, especially blacks uh, and Latinos and other people. And I was thinking about some of the other people we ought to cancel. We're going to have this zero tolerance cancel culture now. I'm in, I'm in L.A., and as you know, they're trying to get rid of the John Wayne Airport because of an interview he gave in 1971 in Playboy where he made some intemperate comments, comments that are deemed to be by some people racist. I just thought that they were sloppy comments, uh, and I certainly did not feel that he was attacking black people. But I remember when that article came out because I was in college, and the black students were all angry about it. I was the only one who was not. So fast forward, John Wayne is now trying to be canceled. Do you know that Martin Luther King in 1958 had an advice column in a magazine called Ebony and a young closeted black gay teenager wrote him a letter and said, Dear Dr. King, I have these feelings for other boys. I know I shouldn't have them. I'm trying to resist them. Please tell me what I should do. And he gave advice that today would be perceived as homophobic. He said, well, pray, go see a good psychiatrist, 
uh, and you're on the path towards working out your problem. Now, that standard right now should get him canceled. Right. Andy that, Young. That's Andy con- Young. That's conversion therapy, right? That's the original that's conversion right. therapy. That's right. Andrew Young, uh, as you know, the first black United Nations ambassador, uh, he supported Jimmy Carter. He marched with MLK. He was with MLK when MLK was shot. That famous photograph of people pointing at the uh, where the shot came from, he's one of those pointing. That's how old school he is. Extremely well regarded. Ran for, became mayor of Atlanta, became the first black United Nations ambassador. And after all of that, he became a spokesperson for Walmart. So he's giving an interview to a black newspaper. This is in 2006. And the black newspaper says to him, you know, a lot of people are complaining because Walmart is displacing a lot of these mom and pop stores, many of which, many of which are owned by Arabs. And Andy Young said, they should displace them. These are the people who've been selling us bad food, tainted meat, wilted vegetables. First it was the Jews, then it was the Koreans, and now it's the Arabs. Very few blacks own these mom and pop stores, end of quote. Are you kidding me? Not just not just Arabs, but Koreans and Jews. And Walmart dropped him as a spokesperson. Of course, he apologized. But we're, we're applying the same standard, the John Wayne standard. It seems to me this guy's statue ought to come down and it stands proudly in downtown Atlanta. So whether or not it's the function of the axis of ideology or just uh, an admixture of cynical exploitation for political purposes, we are where we are, Larry, today with with cancel culture, with people being afraid to speak their minds, um, people being attacked. We, and, and, we've had we've had 20 black people uh, killed since George Floyd was killed by that police right. officer uh, in the in the name of peace and justice. So what, what do we do? And, and here I'd like to well, ask you the 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 instant the, the short term, you know, the 25 meter target question and then the over the horizon. Uh, we can't fix the education system before the election. We've got 111 days left. But on right. the short term, what should Americans who love this country, irrespective of what skin color they have, what should we be doing? And then secondly, as a nation, how do we get to a point where the fraudsters, the propagandists, the people who believe Anthony Zinn are no longer in power? So what's your short term and what's your long term advice for us, Larry? Well, the, the, the short term and long term is the same. People have to wake up. And the only way they can wake up is to tell the truth. We're in a scary place when Drew Brees, a respected uh, NFL player, a quarterback, uh, Super Bowl winning quarterback, all he said, Sab, was, I will never agree with anybody who disrespects the flag. He didn't say, I won't play with them. They should be fined. They should be fired. I want the commission to impose a new rule. Nothing like that. All the man said was, I'll never agree with somebody who disrespects the flag. Next day, apologizes, apologizes again. His wife apologizes. We are in a very different place. In a time in America where things have never been better. You know, the, the way of telling if people get along, the number one way is not what they say, it's what they do. And interracial marriage in America has never been higher. In California, just about one out of every three, 3.5 marriages is interracial. In America, it's about one every, out of every four, out of every four and a half. It's never been that high. We're getting along quite well. What we're not getting along on are politics. Um, and you're having one side maligning the other side, and we're at this place in America I've never seen before. You can't even have a conversation with people anymore. I, I've lost two friends over Donald Trump, including the best man at my wedding. 
I can't even talk to this, this man. And he has a, has a perfect score on his SAT. So it's not about intelligence. Uh, it's about common sense. And so much of it is flat out gone in this country. As I said, a poor kid has never had a better chance of becoming a wealthy kid uh, than, than right now here in America today. Uh, I'm not saying it's easy, but certainly it is, it is easier here than any other country in America. We should be taking advantage of it. Back in 1997, the last time I was on CNN, I think it's because of the last time I was on <laughs> CNN, I mentioned a CNN Time Magazine joint poll. 1997, they asked black teens and white teens about racism. And both of them said racism is a major problem in America because that's what they've been trained. But then they asked the black teens a series of follow-up questions, including, is racism a major problem, a minor problem, or no problem in your own daily life? 89% of the teens, black teens said, it is a minor problem or no problem in my own daily life. In fact, more black teens than white teens said yes to the, to the following proposition. Failure to take advantage of available opportunities is a bigger problem than racism. More black teens said yes to that than white teens did. So what are we talking about here? The problem is, again, the home. Barbara Bush put it eloquently when she said, what happens in your house is a whole lot more important than what happens in the White House. If you don't have a, a person in your home who's telling you to go to bed on time to make sure you've done your homework, you are in trouble. And no social program is going to take the place of that. We ought to be talking about that and talking about the importance of family. Instead, you have the Black Lives Matter. Go on their website. They talk about the Western-style patriarchal family should be a thing of the past. Are you kidding me? The number one problem in the black community is lack of fathers, and the Black Lives Matter movement is encouraging it? Yeah, incredible. Um, on the Drew Brees issue, I, I have to ask you this because it was a bone of contention with, with my producer here, who's a big sports fan and worked in sports radio. Um, when that news broke that he'd apologized, I was pissed, and I was pissed at Drew Brees. For me, that was an honor issue, and that showed cowardice. Right. And my right. producer, Jeff, said, no, 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 I, I have no problem with, with what Drew, Drew Brees did because he's in an environment where he has to do that. The culpability is the people around him. Who, who are the real cowards, Larry? I'm sorry. I, I felt the same way you felt about Drew Brees. Okay. Uh, this guy, I, I could understand if he's a rookie quarterback, maybe, trying to make the team. He is a multimillionaire, long-term contract. Uh, they can't do anything to him. Maybe he's afraid, the only thing I could think of, uh, Seb, maybe he's afraid his line won't block quite as hard for him, uh, and he may get hurt because, you know, I missed the block, I let the guy get hit in the face, my bad, maybe. And if that's the case, if he feels that way about his teammates, I would want a different team. Yeah, no, I, I just had to ask you. Okay, we, we, yeah. we've been talking for half an hour already. It's flown by. Let's talk about your latest project. I remember we shared a stage maybe a year ago in California, and you were so excited. We were in the green, it wasn't a green room, it was a, a, one of the offices in the college, and you were right. talking about this thing, and I, I've almost got the funding, it's the last piece of funding, I'm doing this right. amazing movie. You did it, you got the I funding, did. it's just been released, it is gangbusters, it's called Uncle Tom, watch it tonight, uncletom.com. You can down, you can stream it. You can order the DVD. Use my name, G O R K A. Larry's giving you twenty percent off. Let's listen to a little clip and then let's discuss why you made this movie. So this is from Uncle Tom, Larry Elder's new film. 
I will not pretend to be a victim in this country. I know that that makes many people on the left uncomfortable. Racist, racist, racial, racist, racism. A thousand cuts of racism. I grew up being told of my disadvantages that this country is unfair to black people. The ideology is implanted into you subconsciously to believe these things. It's like a cancerous plague in the mind of black Americans. We're brainwashed to think, well, is it because I'm black? America's not ours, or we got shipped here. No. Our blood is on this soil. We own this too. There should be a pride that we have in the fact that this country was built by many great black men and women. So talk to us firstly, why you made this movie, Larry, Uncle Tom, and who stars in it. And I'll I'll give you my take on my favorite person, but go ahead. Okay. Well, I can't can't really take credit for it because uh, the young director named Justin Malone approached me about two and a half years ago, Seb, and he told me about this project he had called Uncle Tom. He wanted me to be one of the uh, conservatives interviewed. And so I agreed. And I completely forgot about the interview. And two months later, he contacts me and shows me the footage of an interview he had done with Jesse Lee Peterson, who's in the film, and me. And that's all he had. And I was blown away by the way it was filmed, the way it was shot, the black and white thing. I thought it was beautiful. I thought the concept was interesting. And so I said, well, how far are you along in getting this film done? And if it were a baseball game, it would have been in the top half of the first inning. I said, do you have any money? He said, no. I asked him how much it would cost. He told me. I said, look, let me raise the money for you. Let me help you write it and structure it. Let's get this thing done. He was also having difficulty getting some of the people he wanted to interview. And I knew I could get them to, uh, to, to agree to be interviewed. So we did the movie. It took two years to get it done, and it is shattering my wildest expectations, both financially and in terms of its critical reception. As far as money is concerned, uh, Michael Moore's movie, Bowling for Columbine, opening weekend, this has doubled the opening weekend of what Bowling for Columbine did, which went on to become the fifth highest grossing political documentary in the country. And when you think about an online release, a bunch of people can watch it. They can watch it as many times as you want. You can't do that with a theatrical release, so it's even more impressive. And if you look at IMDb, there are over 1,000 people that have registered a rating, and there are about 300 that have written a review. I mean, it takes time to sit down and write a review, and the written reviews, almost every one of them gives it 10 out of 10 stars. And people say things like, I've learned things about the Republican Party I didn't know. I've learned things about the Democratic Party I didn't know. For example, the Democratic Party's one of its founding principles was to preserve slavery. Republican Party's whole reason for existence was to stop the spread of slavery and eventually to stop it. People didn't know that, didn't know that uh, members of the Democratic Party founded the KKK, didn't know that Democrats opposed the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, that this idea that in the mid 60s, all of a sudden they switched sides. Somebody wrote me a letter, Seb, and said, I saw your movie where you talked about the lie that Republicans who are uh, were, were joined by racist Democrats who defected from their party. I have a high school history teacher, he said, who told me that literally, literally, the Democrats and Republicans shook hands and switched sides in the mid-60s. Talk to us about, this is very important because this always crops up, why is the Southern strategy a lie? What, what, what is the explanation for how the South became conservative? Well, what they say is that uh, the side switched because of the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, think about it. A greater percentage of Republicans supported it, yeah. uh, 80%. The Democrats did 60%. So you're a white racist who wants to leave your party because of the Civil Rights Act, and you're going to join a party whose members voted for it at a higher percentage than the party you left? Really? And if you look at all those Democrats that voted for the civil rights, that voted against the Civil Rights Act in the House and in the Senate, ask yourself how many of them switched to become Republicans. 
Answer, one in the Senate, Strom Thurmond, one in the House, whose name I can't even remember. The reason the South became more Republican is the same reason anybody becomes more Republican. The Democrats became the party of higher taxes, the party of pro-unions, the party of anti-religion, the party of pro-abortion, and the, the Republican in the South is a right-to-work uh, area. They believe that you ought to be able to, to work without having to pay, join a union or pay union dues. And so, and, and also, if you look at the, uh, the, the, the Vietnam War, the South was far more in favor of it than, uh, than, the, than the other parts of the country. So for all those reasons, the South, over a period of 30 years, became more Republican. It was pretty competitive until the, the 90s. So the idea that in mass, uh, like uh, uh, like Peyton Manning's going Omaha, and then they switch sides all of a sudden, it's just Peyton BS. And they and the Democrats do that because they have to conceal their sordid racist history, what they did to the, to uh, to blacks, the Kansas Nebraska Act that allowed uh, the new states to determine whether or not they want to be slave or non-slave. That was Democrats doing all that. The Dred Scott case. Arguably the worst, not arguably the worst Supreme Court case ever. That was a 7-2 decision. All seven that voted that a, that a slave was chattel property, all appointed by Democrats. Right. The two that voted against it were, reported, were appointed by non-Democrats. So the Democrats have had their, their racist fingers on the history of this country, and now their policies are damaging the black family to a degree that even some of the racist policies in the, in the past didn't even do. Talk to us about some of the other voices that uh, join you in uh, Uncle Tom the Movie. Well, there's Carol Swain. Carol Swain uh, is a former law professor at Vanderbilt, uh, and she talks about how she was raised. Uh, she was a, uh, a single mom uh, and uh, struggled, and she ran for mayor of Nashville. And one of the things in the, in the movie is about how the Republican Party pretty much ignored her race. They talked the talk, but when she wanted support and help, they weren't around. And one of the points we make in the book, uh, in, in the movie, uh, is that the Republican Party, just as the Democratic Party uh, assumes that they've got black people for granted by, by raising the race card, Republicans write them off because they assume they can't compete for their votes and therefore don't even try. And so we spank both sides. And then, another, uh, carry on, go ahead. I was going to say, another one of the persons in the, uh, in the film, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Alan West, who comes from three generations of, of service members. Uh, there's Herman Cain, who talks about how and why he became the CEO of Godfather uh, and uh, his struggles growing up in the, in the South. His father was a chauffeur uh, for the, uh, uh, the head of the Coca-Cola company. Uh, and uh, just, just the hard work and the values of all these people. And the movie really is being driven by the heart and soul of the movie is a young man who's not famous. His name is Chad Jackson. He's a contractor. This, this, this is my favorite person. So this is my favorite person, of course, in addition to you, Larry. It's, because, it's okay. He's my favorite person, too. <laughs> because we're trying to work out why the movie opens with him and why he's constantly returned through during the movie. And what he's doing is he's applying drywall. He's building something. And it's just so sympathetic that this man is creating something and he becomes a kind of the glue between all your different interviews. You, you understood the metaphor. He also closed the movie. Uh, and it opens with him. And he is a young man, a lifelong Democrat, a Christian, but still a Democrat. And one of his fellow Christians, uh, because he said some negative things about the uh, Republican Party, said, have you read the platforms of the Democratic Party and Republican Party? And the guy says, no. And so Chad reads them both, <laughs> finishes them, and goes, wow, I'm a Republican. I'm a Republican. And the grief he gets, not just from friends, but from his mom, which we didn't put in the film, we have a conversation he has with his mother where she accuses him of being part of the problem. All he did was point out the fact that the reason the police are dis 
proportionally killing blacks is because blacks disproportionately kill other blacks. And he gave her some stats, and she said, well, see, now you're doing, now all you're doing is putting down the black man. This is his mom. And he's saying, mother, unless you have the facts, unless you have the information, you're going to make an emotional decision, and the solutions will forever be elusive. And she didn't want to hear it. His own, his own mom. But how do we win this? It was like that um, article after that college rape case um, turned out to be fallacious, that the sports team didn't commit the, that rape, and the Atlantic editor, where they'd run this, whatever it was, 5,000-word expose of the rape culture at this college, which right. didn't occur, the editor said, yes, the story turned out to be false, but, but the issue <laughs> is so important that we stand by the story. Larry, how do you deal with that? Do we surrender to those who say the fantasy is more important than the reality, like that young man's mother? Remember Jossie Smollett? After it was pretty obvious that he was lying, that became the story. Well, okay, maybe on that night at 2 o'clock in the morning during the winter, uh, two mega hat-wearing white guys didn't mug a gay guy on that night. But it could have happened. It is, again, ridiculous. This shows you how little racism there is in America. When you have to invent stuff, you have to make it up, that means the cupboard is bare. And the idea that somehow we're going to reach some sort of nirvana, 8% of Americans believe there's a good chance Elvis is still alive. That's 28 million Americans, Sam. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so so let, let's, let's talk about this now. We, we have your movie, An Incredible Success. We have Dennis Prager. His movie is An Incredible Success. Um, I was promoting uh, my, um, my colleague, form, now former you know, friend or former colleague, Michael Pack's movie, Created Equal, about Clarence Thomas. An incredible film. I mean, a truly incredible film. We have these little gems of truth on the right. But in Toto, the culture is theirs. They understood the long march through the institutions. Hollywood, which in the 1940s and 50s was the quintessence of American values and patriotism. Just watch Casablanca, watch the Houston movies, the Ford movies. Right. Um, we've lost that. We've lost mainstream media. We've lost, you know, you can go to an Ivy League college in America and major in English literature, and in four years not read Shakespeare, who isn't the best right. English author. He is the best author in any language, in any culture, period, right. bar none. Right. Um, so so wh where do we go? You said we've got to have a voice. We've got to stand, up, stand out. But we need more than that. In terms of the culture, as a man who's in the culture, in the media, most products from conservative filmmakers, let's just stay with that, are garbage, Larry. They're knocking you over the head with the Bible right. or this is what a nice family looks like. The production right. values are garbage. They're poorly written. They're badly acted. You make a movie that works. But I, that's three movies I can think of. Three I can think of in the last five years. What are we going to do, Larry? Deb, we have to raise our game. Uh, when the uh, college basketball kids were kicking the crap out of the uh, foreign basketball teams, everything was fine. Then they got better. They didn't expand the hoop for them. They didn't lower the hoop for them. They raised their game. That's when we started having to use professionals. We need to raise our game. Candace Owens talks about how important it is to fight the culture war uh, in my documentary, her uh, Uncle Tom. She says, we're abandoning the culture wars. Where are our, 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 our conservative comedians? Where are the movies? 
We have to win the culture war, too, because young people are into culture. They're into watching, uh, watching movies, they're into watching videos. We need to make them. We need to make them entertaining. And that was one of my goals in this documentary. Most documentaries are just boring. Yeah. There's no sex. There's no chase scene. <laughs> there's no violence. So how do you make a documentary entertaining and interesting? You have to think about how you're going to do it, how you're going to edit it, how you're going to use the music, how you're going to film it. We all thought about all of that because we wanted the film at the end of the day to be fun to watch. And it is. No, it is. And seriously, guys, tonight, after you listen to my show today, okay, America First, 3 to and 6 mine. Eastern. Now, hang and on. Mine. Hang on. Chronological <laughs> okay. order. Mine okay. first, then mine finishes. Then you listen to Larry's show for the next three hours. And you get, in Larry's show, you get six hours worth of radio. I mean, this is the man who gets paid by the word. He's admitted to it's in his contract, paid right. by the in word. My, he, in my contract. <laughs> he packs it in there. It is a full day's worth of radio. Once you've done that, once it was the My Show and Larry's show today, watch this movie, UncleTom.com, promo code G-O-R-K. You will not regret it, regret, regret it and spread the word. So last last thing, I'd like to play a, a little video cut for, for you. So this is, it's from a couple of years ago. I think it's from 2016. I just saw it this weekend on Instagram or, or somewhere on social media. And uh, it, it's a longer video. It's about a f- three or four minute video. We just have the last end of it. And he, here's the teeing up the story. So somewhere in Florida, there are some young kids. Uh, I think most of them are black, but not all of them. And um, th- they've got a hoop out on the, on the street and they're, they're playing basketball. And one of the neighbors, some grouchy old neighbor, calls the police that they're playing ball in the street and that they're being too noisy. So the local patrolman comes there, um, white guy, and he, he has a chat with them. He doesn't tell them to go home. He doesn't tell them to stop playing ball. He just says, guys, just you know, keep it down a bit, but carry on playing. And he starts shooting hoops with them. Then, a couple of days later, the kids are on the street shooting hoops and about 12 squad cars pull up with the same officer and out get the police officers, white, black, male, female. What do they do? They've come as a team to play against the kids and they play basketball. The white officer becomes known as the basketball officer. And then about an hour later, up pulls a big SUV and a certain seven-foot basketball player you may have heard of gets out of the car and the kids go crazy. He plays with them. He says, if you can hit a three-pointer, I'm going to give each one of you $100 cash. Every (laughs) single kid hits it through the hoop. It's amazing what motivation could do to your hand-eye coordination. And at the end, this is what Shaq says to those kids. So, Eric, let's play video. I will. Be calm. Be calm. Whatever. Whatever. I want to be. I want to be. I will. I will. Be. Be. A leader. A leader. Not a follower. Not a follower. I will respect. I will respect. My peers. My peers. My elders. My elders. Especially my parents. Especially my parents. I love you guys. How important is that, Larry? That, that, that's just so sweet. I got a couple of reactions. The first is Shaq can't even hit a three-pointer. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the second thing is, you, you know, Shaq was raised by uh, a stepdad named Sarge. And, and Shaq credits Sarge with giving him the kind of discipline that made him the star that he is. Shaq talks about how one time he cut up at school and Sarge comes up, takes off his belt. Can you imagine whipping Shaq? And did so. 
Uh, and Shaq says, had it not been for Sarge, had it not been for the discipline, who knows what he would have done? And so Shaq knows about the importance of family, knows the importance of, ha importance of having somebody tell you to do your homework and tell you what time to go to bed. Yeah, just, just that last few lines when he says, first he asks them to repeat after me, and they're quiet, and they're like, kids, it's not loud enough, I want to hear your voices. And when he says, be a leader, not a follower, respect your elders, respect your parents, how much would America change if that became the message across all ethnicities? How much would America change if some of our so-called leaders, no matter what color, say, when the police pull you over, be polite? Be respectful. Say yes, sir. Say no, sir. Cooperate fully. If you're driving, make sure your hands, your left hand's at 10 o'clock, your right hand's at 2 o'clock. Make sure your paperwork is in order. If you feel you're mistreated, get a name, get a bad number, and settle it up later on. Virtually every one of these high-profile persons who were killed would be alive if they had followed those instructions. Um, it is, this has gone far too quickly. Um, we haven't even mentioned your book, the incredible story about your father that makes, brings tears to my eyes, even though I've heard it three times now from your lips on a stage. You need to, what's the title of the book where you tell that story? Uh, the paperback book is called A Lot Like Me. The hardback is called Dear Father, Dear Son, Two Lives, Eight Hours. Okay, A Lot Like Me. Read the book. We'll find a video of it. We'll post the story. It's incredible. Thank you. Um, it's, it's truly, uh, I don't know how I got here, but it is an honor to be able to call you now a colleague, not just uh, somebody who I look up to and, and really is a mentor to so many of us in this field. Um, for those who are worried, for those who are concerned, for those who feel... Um, afraid and don't think they can talk out in America in favor of the values they know to be true. What right. is your parting uh, message to them, Larry Elder? Do what my father always told my brothers and me. Hard work wins. You get out of life what you put into it. You can't control the outcome, but you're 100% in control of the effort. And before you whine about what somebody did to you, go to the nearest mirror, look at it, and say, what could I have done to change the outcome? And my dad also said this, no matter how hard you work, how good you are, sooner or later, bad things will happen. How you deal with those bad things will tell your mother and me if we raised a man. Absolutely perfect, as I expected. Watch his movie, <laughs> UncleTom.com. Read his books. Follow him on Twitter, Larry Elder, and on Instagram, especially on Fridays. And listen to him after America First, 6 to 9 Eastern. God bless you, Larry, and thank you so very, very much. God bless, Sebastian. Thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Albert Mogler for townhall.com. The Little Sisters of the Poor just won a big case at the Supreme Court, but the win goes far beyond the famous order of Catholic nuns. This decision is a big win for religious liberty and for moral conscience. In a 7-2 decision, the nation's highest court ruled that employers who have sincere religious or conscience beliefs against birth control cannot be forced to pay for contraception coverage under the Affordable Care Act, commonly known as Obamacare. The majority decision written by Justice Clarence Thomas came nine years after groups like the Little Sisters of the Poor protested that the Obama administration was forcing a violation of religious conscience through its rules on the Affordable Care Act. 
the court upheld a policy correction made by the Trump administration that restored religious liberty and included the right of conscience for employers. It took both the Trump administration and the Supreme Court to set this straight. Keep that in mind as you vote in November. I'm Albert Moeller. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.